Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. And as usual, we have with us fellow tech editor Dave Rome in from Sydney. Hello. And it is actually just going to be us and a special guest today. But before we get into the show, we first want to announce a big change for Nerd Alert in that we are stepping things up. Because whereas we've previously done a Nerd Alert episode every other week, Nerd Alert is now going to be a weekly show, alternating between our usual group discussion form- format with the whole crew and deep dive episodes where we get super nerdy on the nitty gritty details on various topics, which is what we're going to do today. So in other words, if you haven't already been able to get enough Nerd Alert before, you hopefully will now. And with that out of the way, Dave... We do have a special guest, as I mentioned, on today for this deep dive episode. Yes. Who are we chatting with and what are we chatting about? Oh, it's a topic dear to my heart. Uh, we have Jason Quaid of Abbey Bike Tools here, uh, the US-based tool manufacturer. And we're here to talk all things tools from component tolerances, uh, annoyances in different standards, and what makes a good tool. Yeah, so we've made sure to, ha- to to juice Jason up with about four or five espressos and apparently a burrito. Mm-hmm. So he'll have plenty of episodes <laughs> to just kind of speak freely. Jason, thanks so much for being on this show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So Jason, you are obviously known as your Friar Quaid. You're the person behind Abbey Bike Tools. But before you were a toolmaker and also while you've been making tools, you were also a bike mechanic. What exactly is your background and what makes you qualified to do this sort of thing? Yeah, so I, yeah, was worked at bike shops during high school, uh, like a lot of us did, uh, kind of floated in and out of the industry, uh, actually went to tech school to learn how to weld, um, kind of thinking that, oh, well, maybe here's like this trade that I could apply to, to my hobby, but, um, you know, wouldn't necessarily have to be related. Um, went to school in Oklahoma um, and just wound up doing some, some really heavy industry stuff. Like my first welding job was building uh, – heat exchangers for power plants, um, that were just, I mean, we had a pair of 150 ton cranes, um, in our shop and we had train tracks running through each of the three bays of the shop. So like big, big, big stuff. Um, and everything from like nuclear, uh, grassroots power plants in other countries to like retrofit old, uh, natural gas or coal plants. So, um, was, was kind of a cool, introduction to industry um did a lot of like production x-ray welding um all different processes uh there at the shop and and worked with about 30 other tradespeople, um you know and and everything got inspected so it was kind of a great environment to learn and like here's what is good what isn't good um and just kind of that code land uh you know and just starting out like by the time that i was finished with that job. I probably burned through like four or five tons of filler metal. Uh, filler metal. Um, so yeah, like it kind of it, it makes bicycle things seem rather trivial. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and then also did some stints uh, doing certified aircraft work, where it was was kind of the opposite end of that spectrum. You know, where everything was like machined and fit perfectly, and it all fit on our little cute little welding table and. Um, and everything got TIG welded. You didn't really have to wear long sleeves or, uh, worry about all the smoke and the, the, you know, grinding dust and all that crap. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of my background in industry, did some machining along the way, uh, just to make like little parts or fixtures or like little, I mean, tools really, uh, to aid in the, the fit up or the production of these parts, um, and then, yeah, kind of when the economy tanked, uh, you know, the aviation industry is pretty flighty. And so that that industry augured in pretty quick and uh, went back to work at the bike shop for a couple of years. And that's kind of when uh, I think was my third stint um, in the bike industry. And, and it uh, yeah, this one wound up sticking. So worked at a worked at a shop until that went away, kind of in the, the peak of the recession. Um, and then started doing a bunch of event race mechanic work, uh, throughout the Western United States and, and a little bit over to Europe. Um, and through the course of that met a guy named Jeff Crombie, who asked me to make, uh, our first tool. And it was literally just, uh, he called me up, Hey, do you have a Shimano, uh, quick release, uh, nut and a, and a, and a HD tool? Um, and I was like, yeah, let me walk out to the garage. And he's like, does your skewer not fit in that tool and i'm like 
yeah. And he's like, drill a hole in it, weld a handle to it, send it to me. Uh, let me know which, what I owe you. And so it was literally that easy. And the next day I, I went into this, um, was doing some freelance fab work at a shop. And, and I, I took like literally the, uh, I think it was a Shimano HD tool and I chucked it in the lane and I bored a hole through it and I welded this ugly flat bar, um, handle to it. And I sent it to Canada for Jeff. So, um, and before it had even showed up, I ordered like 20 more, um, parts and, and modified them to, to give to friends and whatnot. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where my background and where Abby came from. And then it just kind of snowballed pretty well from there. So, I mean, you, you've largely been credited, I would say with, uh, you know, almost kind of transforming public perception of bicycle tools, you know, from what's interesting is, you know, that first tool that you made, the, which is called the crombie after Jeff. I mean, it started out as this purely utilitarian item. I mean, he literally asked you for, you know, a handle welded onto a Shimano HG cassette tool. Um, but, you know, it's evolved to items that are arguably just as deserving of design and engineering attention as the bikes themselves. So what was the motivation here? Like, you know, why do you feel that good tools are so important? Yeah, I mean, you know, every tradesperson loves you know, quality tools, if that's something that you're, that you're really going to use to apply your craft, um, you don't really want, you, it becomes pretty easy to tell the difference between something that's high quality, low quality. Um, you know, and then there gets to be some, some, some of it's just fit and finish. Um, you know, we could just take a, take the same tool and just, we could chrome plate it and like, Hey, it's shiny. It looks really nice. But, um, I think if you are a, a true professional, you kind of, you could see through that, that maybe a coating isn't, uh, the end all be all. And that there's other details of, um, how the tool interfaces or fits or, or where the, um, uh, how it engages with the fastener or whatever it is that you're working on. So, so in terms of function though, like you said, you can certainly chrome plate anything and make it shiny and make it look cool or even better, make it gold. Um, but in terms, in terms of function, purely about function here, and what exactly is the difference between what you would consider to be a truly good or great tool and a bad one? Yeah. So one of the things that um, is kind of unique about being a, a tool maker in our kind of segment of, you know, tool making as a whole is that we're often kind of the, the, the key piece in the middle. Um, and so you'll get Shimano or SRAM or Campanile or who, anybody else that's, you know, we'll just use bottom bracket sockets as an example. Shimano comes out with a, uh, a, a bottom bracket and, and then they might come out with a tool, maybe not. Um, and then, you know, what are you going to use to turn that tool with? Um, and so, you know, most of our stuff, uh, almost exclusively uses a three, eight square drive. Um, and you've got, so you've got that feature with another tool from another manufacturer that has its own tolerances and, and clearances baked into it. And then you've got the bottom bracket that has its tolerances. Um, and then we have to be the person in the middle, um, or the, the part in the middle. And so the big thing is, is just how do we clearance and engage and, and, uh, where to put those specific numbers? Um, because one of the things that's kind of, you know, maybe a bit of a misconception in the industry is like, there's, uh, there's the tolerance and that's kind of, uh, but then the, the more important thing is, is like the spec. Um, and so there's a, there's a number, say this thing is supposed to be an inch in diameter. Well, how far away from one inch can we be? Um, and so those two things together, kind of combined to decide how the tool is going to fit onto its, its mating pieces. Um, and so if we know how big the bottom bracket splines can be, then we can, we can lower that spec, uh, to be that much closer to it and then base our tolerance off of that towards if, and so a company like Shimano doesn't always, um, dole out that information for people like us. Um, which is what it is. Uh, there's, there's certainly no ill will there. And then other companies will, will totally like, yeah, here's our engineering drawing. Um, you know, but the, the challenge there sometimes is like, they're one of 30 different companies that make a bottom bracket to that tool interface. Um, and so it, it might be, you know, it's one thing to get SRAM's dimensions for GXP. Um, uh, but then we, we'd have to go get them from Shimano and Raceface and Campagnolo and Token and um, Ceramic Speed, Wheels Manufacturing, Enduro, like the list goes on and on and on. So um, 
And and because nobody really holds the key to that stuff, there's definitely times when we've seen interpretation in, in, of where those numbers should be that don't necessarily line up with the rest of the manufacturers. Uh, we're dealing with a situation right now where um, a company tried to fix what I would say is a toolmaker uh, problem with how tight the tool fits to the bottom bracket. And so they made the bottom bracket bigger. Um, but the challenge is, is that they never had our bottom bracket tool. And so now our tool doesn't fit what, like it should. Uh, in fact, it doesn't fit at all. And, and we're like, literally everybody in the industry except you is holding to this number. Um, and it's, it's not really fair to criticize them because nobody says, Hey, this is the number that you should use. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, it just winds up in this really sticky situation that's, there's kind of nobody to firmly point the finger at. Um, and so one of the things that we always try to do is just cooperate. You know, hey, if, if you're a bottom bracket manufacturer or making any parts, like more than happy to share uh, fitments that are more popular or are not. Um, hey, don't don't use this one. It's kind of a pain or it's become obsolete. Um, and then provide them with those kind of tolerance drawings of, you know, here's, here's the key data points that you need to... Um, to interface with the tool properly. So, so fit is obviously critical with tool making and what I guess helps define a quality tool. Uh, would you say strength or durability is another, another attribute that, that helps define that quality tool? Absolutely. I mean, you know, everybody kind of expects stuff to be pretty durable. Um, the interesting thing is how closely those two are related um, so if you get a tool that is that has a lot of clearance baked into it over the fastener, um, there's going to be a lot of like lash or uh, free play in between the tool and the, the part. Um, and that's where you really kind of need a super hard, uh, really durable uh, tool. Um, if those two parts fit together really, really well, that's kind of that's probably about half the reason um, why we can make really durable sockets out of aluminum. Um, it's not so much that the, I mean, we are using a higher grade of aluminum than most of the other people that make sockets. Um, but the other half of that equation is, is that we just don't allow as much free play, um, as much clearance in between, uh, our sockets and the, um, and the mating part. So we don't have to, we kind of, when you look at it very, uh, kind of under very closely and you kind of cut away, you can see that the kind of the, the radii in the tool spline, how they're the closer they fit, the more um, surface area they share, like the more load or the more uh, surface area you have to transfer that torque to where if it's, it's really loose, you'll only kind of grab on the tangents of those radiuses. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's where you kind of, where you open your, open the door for tool wear and, and a lack of uh, durability potentially. I mean, I guess a really common example that a lot of people would probably be familiar with listening to this podcast is, you know, just a regular Allen head bolt and an Allen key where, you know, either the, either the socket is oversized or the tool is slightly undersized. Either way, if you have a pretty sloppy fit between those two, and especially if that's in a high torque application, it makes it much, much more likely that you're going to either round out the tool or the socket. Absolutely. And that's, and that's where I think professionals see the benefit of a higher quality tool is, I mean, the moment that you have to have to extract a strip faster, I mean, that goes from what could have been a five minute job could take you an hour, right? Depending on the other tools that you have at your disposal. Um, you know, in some extreme cases, it may be that you're, you're scrapping whatever part was, uh, that fastener was in. Maybe, maybe you're lucky and it's just a stem. Maybe it's a whole frame. Um, but yeah, that, that definitely ties, you know, is, is a big part of, um, you know, kind of professional quality tooling. I mean, I think a lot of people would understand that, that good tools do make the job easier, either just by a, a better fit so that the thing's more durable and, you know, it doesn't, excuse me, and it doesn't damage the part, for example, or just the, the, the design of the tool is such that it just physically makes the job easier to do, um, but how is someone to tell what is a good tool for the job and what isn't? Yeah, that, that gets to be a hard one to to gauge through the, the internet, right? Because um, I think that's where brand reputation uh, has a big part to play when you, when you get people that are kind of professional or semi-professional tool reviewers. 
um, and they start to dive into those little details, um, you know, that's probably the biggest thing that you could do pre-purchase is just to kind of find some other people out there that you trust, um, you know, other shops that you've worked at or, or, uh, you know, if you are a consumer, go ask your bike shop what they use. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of a big part. And then when, it, when the tool shows up, like just stick it onto its mating part and kind of give it a little bit of a wiggle. Um, if that thing's got a ton of play in it, maybe you send it back, um, right out of the gate. Uh, if it, if it fits pretty, pretty close, then, you know, you, you'll, you've, you've probably got a pretty good place to start. Um, you know, the other thing that can be challenging with that is kind of on that topic of clearances and tolerances is, uh, to kind of circle back a little bit. But, um, as a toolmaker, we only control half of the equation. And so there's the mating part that also has its tolerances. And so sometimes we get feedback where like top cap sockets, you know, normally they fit really, really tight. Um, but every once in a while we'll get somebody that's like, oh, this thing's loose. And it's like, eh, the way that we manufacture these, they can't, I mean, we could get one that's a little big, uh, that makes its way out of the shop, but you know, they get gauged and inspected in patches and, and like every cycle of the machine. Um, and so it's, it's kind of hard for them to slip through, but it's, you know, it kind of brings up that like, well, what is your, is your top cap actually the right size or is it like, you know, half a millimeter under what it is intended to be? Um, and so sometimes that stuff plays into, into account as well. Um, and so you never, just to clarify when, when Jason is talking about top caps here, he's talking about suspension fork top caps. Correct. But yeah, so I mean, and that's where just measuring things can, can have a big, uh, play I mean, as a, as a tool maker, that's probably about half my job is just measuring things sometimes to ridiculously small numbers. Um, you know, but it, it is, it's the nature of our, of our industry. And, and sometimes, um, you know, a few ten thousandths of an inch can, can make or break what we're trying to do. And then sometimes it's like, eh, we can, we can measure this with a tape measure and it's just fine. So. I mean, surely there's some sort of balance point though, between, you know, the absolute best tool for the job and one that still does the job, but costs a fair bit less. And, you know, like I think anyone who follows Dave on Instagram, for example, um, can see that well, and, and if you listen to the podcast or have read pretty much anything Dave has written, uh, we'll know pretty well that Dave has, um, I, I guess you could say he has a little bit of a problem when it comes to tools. Um, yeah. Tracy, if you're, if you're listening to this, um, just cover your ears for a little while, maybe. Um, I mean, Dave, you know, you and I talk about this sort of thing quite a bit, but I don't know if I've ever asked you this explicitly. Like, you know, what exactly is your criteria for when you decide to buy a tool? Like, you know, what is it that makes you want to add something to the toolbox besides the fact that something is shiny? Uh, if I don't own it, then that's the criteria. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Got to collect them all. I like the cut of your jib, sailor. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> uh... No, for me, a lot of it's discovery. Like, I love the discovery side of, of tools. So, for me, like, a, a tool is kind of a, a window into fixing something and uh, improving an existing job or speeding up an existing job or making an existing, uh, like, mechanical task, uh, whether more efficient or just better, so the outcome is better. And for me, like, new tools are kind of the, the discovery of that. So, I'm, I'm kind of always seeking a, a better way of, of doing something. So... Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of uh, what I look for is is tools that are that offer a unique uh, approach or a unique design that that looks to better um, existing options. Uh, and there's always new stuff coming out. And there's always, uh, you know, Jason here. He's uh, he's certainly got a reputation for uh, rethinking what would otherwise be um, common tools that you know a lot of brands offer and a lot of brands offer similar. And then Jason Jason comes out with something a little. A little different, and uh, you know, with a with a key improvement, uh, and that's that's probably a pretty good example of the type of stuff I look out for in, um, yeah, across multiple industries of of tools. Uh, just forever looking for, uh, yeah, just improvement. I said I'll take the heat off of Dave just a little bit. Uh, I thought I had a lot of tools, and then I started making tools, and then I had to buy a lot more tools. Um, yeah. I, it, 
it's it's mind-boggling, especially the metrology stuff that we use to inspect and measure. Um, that stuff gets super expensive in a hurry, um, and it's yeah, um, there's lots of it. And sometimes yeah. you buy a micrometer, and it only measures holes from you know point four eight five to point six, um, and it's a eleven hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, but it's like those are. You know, the assurances that we need on the manufacturing process so that we don't have to work, you know, rework uh, an entire batch of, of hacks. What, so. What's the rule for every for every decimal point you want to for every extra decimal point you want to measure? You have to add a zero to the cost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of uh, I'd say more so in manuf like the for the on the part side of what we're making. Um, so, you know, every every digit past zero, you kind of add an extra uh, an extra zero to the cost of the part. But. Um, there is kind of, you know, metrology is the science of measuring things. Um, and it's, it's kind of cool to, to dive into and like things where, uh, at some level gravity starts to have a, an impact on, you know, the dimensions of things. Um, but yeah, if we've got a tolerance that's, um, you know, a single thousandth of an inch, then, then we'll go, uh, one digit past that to inspect. So, we're going to measure if, if we've got a, a window of 0.001, we're going to measure to 0. 0.0001. Um, obviously those are all in, in freedom units, um, because for, for Kaylee and because we, uh, we manufacture everything in the U S so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, it's a very well accepted that Abby as a, as a whole and pretty much anything that has that brand on it, any of those tools are manufactured extremely well. They fit very well. They they look great. Um, they they work really nicely. They're just they're just lovely tools to use. They generally make the jobs that they're designed to do easier. But how do you go about the design process of making those tools? So, I mean, you know, we'll we'll get into a minute of you know sort of where you get the the ideas for new tools to begin with. But once you decide that you're going to make something, how do you even go about starting to make the tool itself or designing the tool? Yeah, I mean, some things uh, we have a pretty clear design language that we just slot it into. Um, you know, like for us to add another bottom bracket socket isn't that big of a deal. I think the last one that we did was for um, for THM, which is, you know, super small, but one of our wholesale customers, uh, Fairwell Bikes, I think here in the U.S., wanted that one specifically. And and so it was like, hey, if we can fit it into this outside diameter of the socket, it can use all of the same production tooling as all of the rest of the sockets. And it's very easy to make those in relatively small quantities. Um, you know, so it just becomes a, a matter of, you know, getting our hands on ideally a few different sets of the bottom brackets so that we can kind of gauge where the manufacturer's tolerance is. Um, you know, doing that that sketch, that little splined lobular sketch in uh, in our CAD software, and then you know throw it out to the CNC machine and, and start making parts and see how they fit and, and you know kind of revise back and forth. Um, if it's something that's completely new, like we just did some prototypes uh, last week for for a new widget, um, you know, and it was it was kind of. I mean, the, the first step for us in design is, is how are we going to make it? I mean, we are a manufacturing company. Um, we have the, the capability to manufacture about 95% of our parts in-house. Um, and so we know what those machines are capable of, and we kind of want to work within the limits of those uh, machines as much as possible. So um, that's kind of step number one is what machine are we going to make this on? Is it, you know, is it going to be a mill part, a lathe part? We're going to have to uh, maybe get some outside process stuff. Um, materials, a big part of that. Um, is this going to be a steel part? Um, is it going to be another aluminum part? How are we going to coat it if it even needs a coating? Um, and then it just kind of comes down to geometry and, and what that tool needs to do. Obviously kind of designs a pretty overarching thing. So if, to kind of talk about it in a, in a vague example is, um, can be difficult, but, um, you know, if it's going to be a wrench, like right now we're running um, reverb wrenches in the in the mill, you know, that tool, we kind of, you know, uh, we developed those in conjunction with RockShock and, and they wanted the ability to be able to uh, torque them to spec. So it's like, all right, well, we need a 3.8 square drive in the middle of the tool. Um, but we kind of realized that most people weren't going to use that feature. Um, 
you know, and so then it's like, all right, well, we want this thing to kind of be a bit of a lever as well. And it kind of have a built in wrench, but we didn't want to do them just as single ends and, um, all that stuff. So there's, yeah, it, it can, I mean, every tool's different is kind of the, um, the ultimate answer. Um, you know, and it's rare that we do things that are just completely different. Um, right. There's usually some kind of a precedent or an example out there of, you know, if we're going to build wrenches, I mean, wrenches have been around since, I don't know, 1800s, 1700s, you know, as long as fasteners have, um, you know, people have been making things to turn them with. So, you know, there's, there's history there. Um, are there special clearances that we need to worry about? Um, you know, like Santa Cruz has, uh, I think all of their current full suspension bikes have, uh, swing arms that sit way too close to the bottom bracket. So our bottom bracket tools won't work on a lot of those bikes without dropping the shock. Um, at least from half of its, um, dropping one shock bolt and moving the swing arm out of the way. And it's kind of like, you know, that's a situation where I'm not sure what happened in their design process to maybe overlook tool interfaces. Um, or if that's something that came from a, a GXP 24 millimeter spindle world. And then as they evolved into a 30 millimeter spindle, um, environment that that's when that, uh, issue popped up. Um, I don't know what exactly the timeline is there, but you know, those are things that we have to think about. Um, you know, if we're, if we're working on a damper shaft and it's out in the open and we have free 360 degree, uh, turn radius around there, then, you know, we can do a closed end wrench. You slide it on once and you just spin it until it's done. Um, if it's something like a, like a fork top cap, like that's something where a wrench doesn't work out all that well because you have to reposition it. Um, you know, every half a turn, which, which works, but it's obviously, it's not ideal. So, you know, you kind of brought up something earlier that Dave and I both really wanted to dive into pretty, pretty heavily on here. Um, and that is, well, to get, to get a little specific for a little while, we're, you know, talking about bottom brackets, which is something that I feel like bike media and socking tips in particular is, uh, very, very apt to complain about, and I feel like for very justifiable reasons. What is the current count right now for the number of current bottom bracket spline patterns that you have to accommodate? Uh, let me pull up our new price list because it's enough that I don't remember offhand. <laughs> and when and when terrifying. James says spline bottom brackets, he's talking for threaded bottom brackets specifically. So uh, there is a whole other world of bottom brackets out there, but we'll stick with threaded for now. Right, because it really wasn't that long ago. I mean, you know, I think all three of us have been around shops in bike mechanics for for quite a long time at this point. And and I remember, you know, you could probably have all of your bottom bracket tools in I don't know, you could probably have in them your pocket on ha- practically <laughs> yes, practically in your pocket. I mean, you know, you know, let's just say you were discounting or just eliminating the old adjustable cup and cone bottom brackets where you had to have, you know, a lock ring and like, you know, fixed cup wrench and all that stuff. Let's like just dealing with that, you know, after that era you had, let's see, you had a, a Shimano spline, yep. which pretty much everyone used. Yep. You had, um, campy, you know, Phil Wood, you had campy. Yeah. And that was very, very close to it. And you had just a, a, a couple of really, really minor oddballs. Yeah. But that was pretty much it. Yeah. The Shimano one so, would do like you know, 90% of the jobs you saw through a shop. Easily, yeah. easily. And yeah, now with all the external external bearing threaded bottom bracket designs that are out there. So Jason, what's what's the current count then? 12. 12. And that's only and, and that's only for the ones that you make tools for. So are there any out there that you don't make tools for? Um, yeah, so we make tools, I, I believe, for everything that sits outside of the frame. Um, so it, if we kind of revert talking about those, some of the, the glory days, if you will, of bottom bracket fitments, um, you know, the ISIS Octolink, uh, Phil Wood, all the square taper stuff, um, all of that's none of that stuff that we make tools for. So everything that we do is kind of a, an outboard bearing design. So, um, Chris King, Praxis, Hope, E13, uh, Torque Tight. Yeah, the list goes on. So, but yeah, bearings that are mounted outside of the physical bottom bracket shell or that the tool spline is outside of the bottom bracket um, itself. And many of these bottom brackets, or pretty much all of those bottom bracket tools that have fit bottom brackets that have come out since, say, 2005, 2006, would you say? 
Would you agree with that? Um, Maybe two. Yeah. What was the first? So I, I do know that the Zip Vumaquad crankset okay. was the first to implement that uh, kind of 30 millimeter spindle in a 68 millimeter kind of uh, English shell. Um, and then there were a couple, I'd have to, maybe you guys can fact check uh, or look up the date on when that, that crankset was launched. Um, and then there were a few other companies that did it for a little while and then it seemed like it kind of plateaued and then it just exploded again. And, um, and I think what led to this situation that we're in now is that it was all of these small companies trying to, uh, you know, throw their stake in the ground of, of a higher performing part. And since nobody big went first, uh, i.e. Shimano or SRAM, there was nobody to kind of, you know, lay out the groundwork and say, hey, here's the tool pattern that we're using for this. And, and at that point, everybody kind of has that logical progression to like, all right, well, we'll use that tool because it's what Shimano used or it's what SRAM used. And it, it may not even be the best solution for that, but, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it becomes a little bit of a de facto standard, even though it's not formally recognized as one. Yeah. Right. So in, in light of that, given that, you know, let's just say, you know, yes, it is someone, you know, at a smaller company wanting to come out with their own thing and then deciding that they're just going to do their own spline pattern. Why is that though? Because I feel like we do run into the situation over and over again, where, we, you know, it seems like a pretty consistent theme where clearly someone sitting at a computer at some company decided that some way that they've decided is the better way of doing it or the best way of doing it when some other way already exists that is already widely accepted. So from a toolmaker perspective, looking at it from these bottom bracket splines, for example, bottom, these bottom bracket cup splines, I should say. Are any of them actually any better than the other ones or are they just different? And is there any reason why there couldn't be just like two or three of them out there? You know, why do I have to have a bottom bracket tool drawer that is filled to the brim with different tools for the particular application? Yeah, I mean, uh, for us as a tool maker, it's, it's kind of nice to be the solution and not be the villain. Um, you know, it, it makes for good business, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, I think, looking at it from where we are, obviously there was the original um, XTR, I think was the first Shimano crank set that was mounted externally. Um, so that one needed to exist. Um, and then Shimano went to the smaller diameter cups for a, a performance advantage. Um, why they split them into two is kind of questionable. That's, um, that's and Altegra. Yeah. 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 And by questionable, you mean dumb. Um Sure. You, you you maybe can't say that. You maybe can't say yeah, that. No, but I, I will I go ahead and it. say that. Yeah. So so what uh, what Jason's talking about is um, Shimano Durace, like a couple of generations ago, came out with a completely new spline pattern for their bottom bracket. They made it much smaller than the the pre existing, I'd say, industry standard. And then a year later, they came out with Altegra with yet again a different diameter tool for no real reason, it seems. Um, so now Shimano all of a sudden had three tools that were required. Uh, as opposed to for long having just one. Yeah, I mean the the it, it, oddly enough, little side story. I was in the back of a, a Shimano neutral service car when I found out about that, and one of the tech reps had just come back from Japan like two days before, and you know found out that I was the tool guy, and he's like, "Oh yeah, you do the Durace tool," and he's like, "Are you going to do one for the new Altegra?" And I'm like what and he's like yeah they're different and i i was like no they're not i'm like you have to be kidding me um and he's like no i'm serious and so then i get back from that race and i, I call somebody at shimano and i'm like is this true like totally thinking that it wasn't going to be and they're like no it is and yeah we're not excited about it uh the reason that i got for why that exists is that they could not forge the shape for the durace cup out of the alloy that they wanted to use for Altegra. But yet they still wanted some of the performance advantages of the Durace, uh, the smaller bearings, smaller seals. Uh, and so they that's how they wound up with three. I think if they maybe would have finished the engineering of the Altegra group beforehand, that maybe they would have just done one. But, um, you know, that's mm. that's their company, their business. Um, you know, to, to bring up THM, which you mentioned just a minute ago, that... You know, you basically had to make an, yet another tool for for their bottom bracket design. 
THM is a comparatively speaking, they are a tiny, tiny, tiny company. Mm -hmm. So, what possible reason could they have to use their own spline pattern instead of one that already exists? Because you know, you said, for example, that you know, Fairwheel. uh, This is a a really well, well, uh, well known, super reputable shop in in Arizona. you know, they, they requested that, you know, basically a, a run of these super small, uh, small production tools. Yeah, why? I mean, <laughs> what, what's, what's the purpose there? Yeah. So, um, kind of back to the, the, the previous question. Um, so the, the, t- the two Shimano ones probably needed to exist. And then the, what we call the BSA 12, which was for that zip Vuma quad and the race face, uh, that one needed to exist. Um, there were several others that could have fallen suit in that one. Uh, E13, uh, Praxis. Um, although the, the Praxis one's kind of cool because the geometry of it allows you to use a little bit bigger tooling to cut the spline, uh, which makes it a little easier to manufacture. But that's not a, arguably not a big enough reason for uh, not jumping on board with something else. Um and then the other one that definitely needs to exist is the torque type uh, that came from uh, Sunny at Enduro. Um, and that one, it looks the same as the other 16-notch patterns, but it's just a little bit bigger. And so the geometry of the torque type pattern uh, will work with things that are smaller, but like the um, FSA's pattern that essentially is the sister one to the BSA-12, uh, same application, different tool, um, that one kind of overlaps with the bear, where the bearing needs to sit for the torque tight. So we probably needed about four of these. Um, and then the rest of them are, you know, redundant. And you'd have to ask the particular brands why they wound up there. Um, I think from from my position, it, it feels like they just didn't want to pick up the phone and ask somebody, especially if it's a competitor, which is where we always try to, to be the middle person of like, hey, we'll have those conversations and, and King Creek doesn't have to call hope to find out, you know, what's going on. Well, I guess that kind of is in line with another, you know, sort of another lot of this conversation that I want to have is, you know, we talk a lot about how a lot of aspects of, especially modern bikes seem to be designed and engineered without a lot of input from people who would necessarily be working on these things like you know a classic example like bottom bracket certainly but another big classic example right now would be you know sort of the the craziness of internal cable routing that we're all dealing with um you know from an end consumer standpoint and on paper and in pictures you know a lot of these new bikes look great you know they're super super clean like everything's hidden away they're nice and sleek and you know they they look fantastic from a serviceability standpoint however you know for the, you know, the idea that I could potentially have to disconnect two derailleur lines and two hydraulic brake lines just to replace a single upper headset bearing, which, you know, is a job that used to take literally five minutes to do. And now it could potentially take half an afternoon to do if you're an experienced mechanic. That just blows my mind. But you know, so we have that aspect array that we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast already uh, before. But you know, I also wonder, you know, in the sense that a lot of a lot of times we feel like, you know, people on the engineering side of the equation should be talking more to you know the mechanic side of the equation as far as making things that that, that can be easily serviced and repaired and worked on. Do you run into? I mean, how often do you run into situations, or how often does a company approach you to ask you, like, you know, hey? We have this new thing, or we've come out with this thing. We're thinking about making this thing. You know, what are your thoughts on tooling for it? Like, you know, is this something that we is this something that we can change? Like, is there you know, do you have a recommendation for us? Because I know several years ago, and like you, I know you have collaborations with with SRAM. You make tools for a lot of the rock chalk stuff. Um, but do they ask you to make tools after these things are already developed or do they potentially develop some of the stuff in collaboration with a tool maker like you so that when this thing is developed, there is a full suite of tools available for the thing to be worked on? Yeah, usually they're, they're already pretty much locked down. Um, there have been, usually they're pretty far away from launch. Um, you know, so I, I think 
like to think that maybe if we pushed really hard that we could get somebody to like, Hey, you should really change this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's usually once it's probably on the verge of being too late to, to alter a tool pattern. Um, you know, we do have, we've got some projects in the works now with a bike manufacturer that's, uh, you know, has a new bike coming out and it's got some challenges and, and their lead engineer reached out to us and said, Hey, can we, um, can we get you guys to make us a wrench and another widget for this thing? And, uh, and it was like, yeah, we can, uh, we could work towards that, you know? And, and, um, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to, s they probably don't ask us as all that often. Um, but the other thing to realize is that all of these companies have other people that they could ask that already work for their company, right? There's demo drivers, there's warranty people. They, they employ a handful of bike mechanics, even in a, a relatively small brand, um, that they could like, Hey, go put the new thing together and tell us what's a nightmare about it so that we can maybe either a develop a custom tool or work with a tool manufacturer to do this or B like maybe revise the parts so that they're not such a chore. Um, so it's not like they necessarily need to come to us, but maybe go talk to their demo guys or their team mechanics or, um, the resources that they already have. Um, I'm thinking of one product type that perhaps is an example that shows that's not always the case um press fit bottom brackets uh you offer press fit tools for installing the bottom brackets but uh noticeably missing from your tool range uh tools for removing said press fit bottom brackets um why is that because i hate bearing tools <laughs> um yeah, I mean, unfortunately, our, our bearing installation tools have been out of stock for m several months now. Um, and it there's just so many pieces that we have to make for those things that it becomes a, a big kind of, becomes a massive burrito in the belly of the manufacturing process that we have to, you know, get through. And it, it for us, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's just kind of, it's a big speed bump. Um, but yeah, it... Who knows? Um, I'd, I'd love to make some bearing tools. I've got some, or some bearing extraction tools. I've got some cool ideas floating around in my head to, to do a, a truly, sorry, the dog's going ballistic. I don't know if you guys can hear that. Um, but yeah, um, for a true blind bearing puller that doesn't really seem to exist in the market, um, they need at least a little bit of clearance behind there. And we've, uh, we've prototyped some stuff uh, in the past for that, that, could be cool to bring to market, but at the same time, it, it, um, you know, we're still a relatively small company. So it's, uh, yeah, we're going to make it all. Yeah. But would you, would you say that those press fit bottom brackets suddenly fall into the, the, the problematic area where there's the chance of designing one tool to remove everything currently on the market is, is an impossibility? <laughs> yeah. So that's one like kind of the, uh, in that design question, you know, there's so many bearing tools can be really easy on one, on one standpoint, because the bearing is very accurate. Um, and if you've got a 6806, it's always going to be, you know, damn near exactly the same size. Uh, so it's easy to work around that. But the thing that's challenging with like bottom bracket bearing extraction tools is that the cups and the frames and the sleeves and all of the things that are between the bearing and the frame get really complicated. And, and so it's hard to come up with uh, a one trick pony that can do all of those. And then, you know, there's some, some bearing tools that press uh, extraction tools that press on the side of the frame, um, which seems like a great idea. I've always been super paranoid that somebody's going to use that on a, a really lightweight bike. Uh, that's not a load that the engineer thought about for, you know, removing, uh, removing bearings and that we're going to get that phone call saying that our tool broke somebody's, you know, $6,000 frame. And I don't ever want that phone call. So what could the bike industry do in general to make it easier for a tool maker like yourself? Or just, you know, are there, you know, are there any aspects of a bicycle in terms of the design and engineering of it that, you know, can, can make it easier to service or to make it easier to, to design tools for? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe that ship sailed at this point. Um, you know, I mean, we had kind of this glory days of 10-speed shifting with external cable routing and threaded bottom bracket shells. And, um, 
you know, coming from a racing background, I definitely appreciate the performance gains that we chip away at. Um, are they necessary for the bike buying public? Probably not. Um, but I don't know. I think things like electronic shifting have made huge inroads in dealing with some of the issues, um, that you're talking about with headset bearings and stuff like that. Uh, you know, thankfully the, the quality of headset bearings can be better. I mean, obviously like the, the worst possible situation would be to, to pair that design, uh, of all of this cabling and stuff running through your headset bearing and then use spec a really poor quality headset. Um, you know, that just Surely exacerbates no that. that. Surely. I'm sure somebody has. <laughs> I'm sure they all have. But, but um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I feel like we're we're kind of okay. Um, you know, just the, the proliferation of fitments is always a challenge. Uh, the more bearing sizes that you use, the more things, you know, the more tools that you have to use to support them. Um, we have had some some people from you know, major OE hub manufacturers that if, you know, Hey, what are you guys doing bearing install tools for? We want to, want to do a cartridge hub. Um, and we, we want to make sure that we use common size bearings. And so we kind of gave them our list and, you know, they went away and, and kind of, you know, told the product manager, told the hub engineer, they're like, use one of these 20 sizes because, you know, people already make tools for it. Um, I'm pretty sure that you can work around this one constraint. Um, you know, there's lots of options. So, um, that kind of stuff's always good. And, and you, I think we're, some product managers are, are really good about stuff like that. Um, some of them are maybe not. And, and then obviously you get the, uh, kind of the industrial designers involved and like, Ooh, this, this bike looks really sexy because it's, it's got all this internal routing and it looks really sleek and, and those bikes do look cool. But, um, at the same time, I think people like us look at them and, and just, kind of shrug your shoulders and like that's going to be a nightmare to work on um i i but... shudder more than i shrug my shoulders but uh <laughs> i don't own bikes like that and i fortunately don't have to review them uh whether or not i want to so well the thing is i mean i don't mind reviewing them the question is you know i would have a much bigger issue with owning a lot of the ones that i review that's that's a whole different story um I kind of want to take a, a little bit of a more practical turn to this conversation a little bit to, to kind of finish on a, you know, a little bit more of a, I guess, useful and pragmatic note for, for our listeners. Um, I, I think we can all agree that um, there is essentially no limit to the number and type of different tools that you could purchase, even for a relatively simple, straightforward bike. Um, I can vouch for that. <laughs> so... You know, Dave, I'm going to toss this to you and to Jason. Um, you know, for for someone who is perhaps not as you know not as experienced and hasn't been doing this for as long as as the three of us has, for example, and they they are building up their their tool catalog at home for working on stuff. Um, what sort of recommendations that you, what sort of recommendations do you have for people when they are trying to build out their their tool chest essentially you know like how how nice a quality do they really need to to get you know what sort of tools should they really be looking for for a particular job you know do they really need that shop quality tool or can they get by on something else and what are, what are kind of more of the practical aspects and dave i'm going to ask you to set aside some of your own personal preferences for this because you are not normal oh. in this respect <laughs> oh Way to get personal. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean you're bad. I just mean you're not typical. All right. All right. Are any of us normal? Well, no. Yeah. But that's besides the point. <laughs> Dave's Dave's abnormal amongst abnormal men. Yeah. Something like that. Well, yeah, when I'm being judged by the person that, as a customer of the person that makes the tools, is being judged for having too many upset tools, then I guess that that uh, <laughs> is proof to what James is saying. So there you go. I, I, I'm telling you, man, my tool collection will go toe to toe with yours. So yeah, no, I have. I don't even own a mill, so you've got me. You've got me beaten in a whole different game there. Anyway, back to the question. So if someone has, you know, let's say they have their basic, you know, 
Park or Pedro's Toolkit or whatever to you know just handle the essentials. They have their sort of ready to go off the shelf thing for the for the most basic stuff, and they start running into more specialty operations. Like you know, yes, let's say they have let's say they have to re- remove a bottom bracket, or let's say they you know are installing that new headset or new headset or fork or you know some other specialty job that they just you know one of the regular tools won't handle. You know, where do you first draw the line between you know most people are not made out of money. Where do you draw the line between whether you should buy the tool or just have someone do the work for you? Because I feel like I run into this a lot with, you know, like with cars too. Like I, I could certainly just buy whatever tool I need to do a, per, a particular job, but if I only am going to have to do it once, then it probably doesn't make sense to do that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to, you know, are you a person that wants to do all your own maintenance or are you a person that's just looking to be uh, price conscious with it? Um you know, probably the first thing to ask your, once you've answered that question, the next step is, is how often do I need, do I foresee myself doing this? Um, and if, in the case of, you know, some of the really brand specific tools, is, is this a, a tool that I'm going to have to buy to work on this bike that I plan to own for three years or, you know, and, and I might need to do this job twice. Well, what's the cost of the tool versus having it done becomes a pretty easy, um, you know, math equation to, to just kind of look at. Um, and if it's, it's something, if, if you're going to do it a lot, then go buy the nice tool. Um, if you just like nice things in life, then maybe you buy the nice tool, even if you only need to use it occasionally. Um, you know, I think the other, the other component of that equation is, is, is what's your, how do you value your downtime? Um, so if you live in an area that maybe only has one or two bike shops and they're always really busy in the summertime, Maybe you don't want to deal without your bike for, you know, three to four weeks uh, for a tune up, right? Like maybe you want to struggle through that, uh, you know, watching some YouTube videos on a Saturday afternoon and and be able to go ride on Sunday and and have everything work really well. So, um, yeah, the other thing that I'd say is maybe kits aren't the best place to start, um, especially with today's modern bikes that, um, you know, have so many specialized little widgets. you know, and custom, or like not necessarily custom tools, but tooling that, um, that isn't brand agnostic, that isn't, you know, used on everything. Um, and that's starting out with, uh, you know, some general purpose tools, uh, you know, screwdrivers, um, pliers, whatever from, from reputable brands might be a better uh, cost conscious way to, to step into a really nice set of tools that didn't come kind of maybe prepackaged as a kit. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that, definitely, which is, uh, yeah, you know, see what type of repairs you're going to be working on, what type of repairs you're likely to do the most, and what tools are required to do those repairs, so the tools that you're going to get most use out of, and spend your money on getting better quality versions of those, and then, you know, really assess if you if you are going to, if your frame requires a, a pressed-in headset, you know, chances are you're only going to do that once for that frame. Uh, and then you can service the headset without ever having to take the those cups out again. So maybe you don't need a headset press, um, but you know something like a derailleur hanger tool, which is traditionally considered uh, a shop only tool for for straightening and checking the straightness of um, derailleur hangers. That these days I, I believe is a is a super common tool that anyone doing um, you know their own gear adjustments or their own cable changes. That's probably a, a shop tool that you should own. Uh, so there are, there are definitely, you know, I think it's a case by case basis, but, uh, yeah, it goes back to what Jason was saying, which is, you know, if you are going to be able to count on, you know, the, the times that you'll need said tool, you know, on one hand, then, you know, it really is a, a question of whether you're buying the tool because you want to do everything yourself or whether you're doing it trying to save money. Um, and those are two very different things. I will throw out a, uh, a shameless plug for a giveaway that we're doing next month with the Grow Cycling Foundation to uh, to give away ref or in a sweepstakes one of our team issued toolboxes. So if you're looking to uh, start from scratch and, and want to support a great cause, uh, look for that in the month of February. Mm. That that uh, is is that con- is that contest open to media? Uh, I think anybody can buy those those uh, raffle tickets. So mm-hmm. yeah, go for it. Yeah, so that that team issued toolbox is something we've covered on Cycling Tips before, but it's a uh, it's a pretty cool example of if you're looking to build your own toolkit at home, it's a pretty cool example of uh, what you should aspire toward uh, and the tools that perhaps you should be including. Uh, 
so yeah it's 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 very uh well thought out and put together with um very commonly used tools so it's a good example of the tools that most people should start with all right last question i'm going to have for the two of you now i know that obviously a really high quality tool will last a long time and make a job easier that sort of thing what are some of your best reasons to give people for, for people who are thinking to themselves like, oh, I don't want to spend money on a good tool. I'm just going to buy this thing because it's literally one quarter of the price and I can just go buy it from Harbor Freight. Surely they make good tools. Um, what are your words of advice for people who really don't want to spend the money even for something halfway decent? You know, I think the first uh, the first time that a cheap tool strips out a fastener you're going to spend as much time as it would have cost to, uh, to buy the nice version, um, is maybe, you know, that's typically the way that I look at it. Um, there's also just, you know, even if it doesn't completely strip out, it's probably going to leave witness marks and stuff. And, and, uh, if you're looking at like the, the hanger alignment tool that Dave just mentioned, like that's a tool where, uh, a little bit of extra precision can make a big difference, uh, in how the, the finished drivetrain performs. Um, that does take into, you know, the assumption that everything else is dialed, that your, you know, your chain has good lubrication on it. Your, your cable system is, uh, is in good shape. Um, you know, nothing's excessively worn. And then at that point, that last couple of millimeters of hanger alignment can really kind of bring a, a, a mid range or a top shelf drivetrain into their own. So, yeah, I would, I would add that in, uh, in our world with, uh, everything seemingly being throwaway and disposable um for me tools are one of the the exceptions to that where you know a quality tool is something that genuinely can can be an heirloom item and be passed on from generation to generation and if you buy a quality tool you know it's going to last you know if you buy a, a quality tv you don't know it's going to last these days right and you might not even be able to repair it in five or six years time but for me a tool is is kind of the exception to to many uh, other industries and um, yeah, you know, it's, it's a, you, uh, you cry up front and uh, you're fine after that. But uh, I think it's worth investing in something that, you know, you're literally going to have for a lifetime. Um, whereas, you know, a cheap tool, as Jason said, might cause some damage to the, to the product you're working on, but more importantly, after a few, you know, after a few uses, there's a chance that, that you might have to replace that tool again. And then that's just, that's just ending up in landfill. Yeah, I mean, I guess just to provide a little bit of an example for that, I mean, not too long ago, you know, at Cycling Tips, we all write, uh, you know, everyone on staff writes sort of their, like, you know, 10 favorite products of the year, that sort of thing. And I think it was two years ago, I think, that, you know, one of the tool, one of the items that I had on my list was a pair of six-inch bolt cutters mm -hmm. that I had uh, that were gifted to me from one of the first bike shops that I worked at that were made in West Germany. <laughs> not Germany, West Germany, to give you some indication as to how old they were. Uh, and that is one of the absolute best tools I've ever used. It still, cut, it still cuts everything that I could possibly want to cut. It still is super sharp. It still cuts paper. That's how, that's how well it still, it's still sharp and lines up. Um, I cut chain links with it. It's just ridiculous. Um, and that is something that I certainly clearly, you know, had I bought that tool initially, I certainly would have gotten my money's worth out of that time and time again. And you know, that, that, that is Dave, like you said, that's something that presumably is, is going to outlast me well, well into the future. Yeah, for sure. And because you didn't mention the specific name, it's a Knipex, um, mini bolt cutter, I think is what you're, the one you're talking about. It is, it is. Yeah. I don't have the part number off the top of my head, but yeah, that, that, that's what it is. And I recommend everyone buy one. Uh, but anyway, I, I do have a, I do have a set of those. I've, I've cut, uh, tens of thousands of pieces of TIG wire with them. Um, you know, the other thing to Dave's point of sustainability is, uh, it, as a tool manufacturer, it's definitely pretty motivating to know that, that, you know, everything that we're sending out the door is, is probably going to outlast the people that made it, um, and the people that bought it. So it, it, it is kind of a cool, uh, I don't know, kind of a cool, warm, fuzzy feeling, uh, about what we do. A lasting legacy. Well, there you go. Make, make your investments wisely. And then ideally, if you've done them, if you've made good choices, they'll pay off. Cool. Well, Jason, thanks so much for being on the show. I think that was, well, I certainly learned a couple of things and hopefully the people listening <laughs> learned a little bit as well. Hopefully they make it through all of it. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I dare say that given the Nerd Alert audience that, that we have, I, I, would, I would dare say that we will get 
questions and comments from people that will say, well, that would be along the lines of, well, why didn't you ask this? Or why didn't you go into this? Or, you know, what exactly is the tolerance of a Shimano bottom bracket in terms of diameter? What, yeah. when, so when's the second part coming out? Yes, yes. When's so yeah, maybe we do a, a volume two, yeah. Uh, you know, I dare say it certainly is a possibility. But uh, along those same lines, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, this is the beginning of what is going to be now a weekly Nerd Alert podcast. And we are going to be doing a lot more of these deep dives. So if you do have suggestions or comments or questions about this particular type of Nerd Alert show that we're going to do, please let us know. Um, you can certainly do so in the comment section of the post that usually associates this podcast on cyclingtips.com, or you can go ahead and find us on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, I'm Angry Asian on Twitter. Dave, you are Roman stuff, I believe. On Instagram. Yeah. yeah. On Instagram, yeah. sorry. Uh, but there are certainly ways that you can find us. And if you do have suggestions for future episodes, please let us know because we are open to pretty much anything because there's an awful lot to nerd out about. And we hope to just kind of dig into as much of it as we possibly can so once again thanks again for listening we really appreciate it make sure you hit subscribe leave us a comment leave us a review or better yet tell all your friends so more people can find out about nerd alert and until then we will see you next week see y'all